Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Dr. Benjamin Rush is not yet the subject of a Ken Burns miniseries, but he really ought to be. The Philadelphia physician was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. As an anonymous polemicist, he helped inspire the Boston Tea Party. He was even the editor of Thomas Paine's wildly influential Common Sense. As detailed in a new biography by Stephen Freed, he both treated and became a close friend to several U.S. presidents. And he was also appointed by his pal Thomas Jefferson to be medical advisor to the Lewis and Clark expedition that departed. St. Louis in 1804. Joining me in studio to talk about this amazing American life is Stephen Freed. He's the author of Rush, Revolution, Madness, and the Visionary Doctor Who Became a Founding Father. The book is an absolute delightful read, and as of this week, it's out in paperback. Stephen Freed, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Great to see you. Do you have a question for our guest or a comment about the life of Benjamin Rush? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. Stephen Freed, you argue that Benjamin Rush was a big deal, founding father, visionary doctor, friend of everyone who was anyone. But he has largely been forgotten. Why is that? Uh, well, it turns out, interestingly, it was on purpose. Uh, Rush was sort of a very inconvenient truth teller during his life. Uh, one of the things that he did was he got into a, an argument with George Washington, which uh, hung over their relationship for the rest of his life when he was a Surgeon General in Washington's Army. And so when he died in 1813, uh, both his family, um, his son Richard Rush was rising in the government, and his two best friends, uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, uh, wanted to make sure that all the letters they had written between them, which are unbelievably interesting, were not seen uh, because they were worried they were too true. And they were very open about uh, their feelings about how America had turned out, uh, very open about, especially with Jefferson, his feelings about religion, hmm. which he wasn't quite ready to talk about, although he later did. And so uh, when he died, they sort of wanted to make sure that Rush's legacy uh, was kept on the down low. So uh, his, his medical students didn't. He, you know, Rush taught the first 3,000 doctors who became doctors in America. He was ran the, the first medical school in America at the University of Pennsylvania. So he kind of laid the groundwork for everything in that field. He did. Although, of course, some of the medicine he was teaching at the time, we don't exactly do anymore. We, not a lot of bloodletting, hopefully, being done in St. Louis. Um, but uh, so his medical students revered him. Many of them had portraits painted of him to hang in their offices. So he, he stayed on in the medical world. But in the history world, his, his writings were suppressed for over 100 years. And so uh, some of them are just being found now. But he was a correspondent with everybody. He was many of these people's doctors. And he was uh, a very accessible writer on many different subjects that we care about today. Uh, a lot of diversity issues uh, that people didn't take as seriously as they should have then. I mean, Rush was the, one of the first white people to come out and say that prejudice against African Americans was bad. And that was not even just slave, he, not just yeah, slavery, but prejudice. But, but prejudice against free blacks was equally bad. That he treated both white and black people, and they were the same. And that's even though he had grown up in a home where there apparently were some slaves. Uh, his mother. We do have records that the mother had uh, slaves who were sold. Uh, it's it's actually a big argument about what, when Rush had slaves because the main text about Rush is wrong about when he had slaves. He personally owned one slave. Uh, in the 1780s, there's some discussion about whether he uh, uh, did this to free the slave um, or not. But mostly Rush was known as the founding father who was most against slavery and most against racial prejudice. And he is 
he helped the founding fathers of the American black church to start the first two free black churches in America, uh, which is really sort of a bigger issue in terms of what Rush did uh, in the African-American community. But he was very interested in diversity in terms of women being educated. Uh, he was a huge advocate for mental illness and addiction, which he wanted people to understand were medical illnesses and not failures of will or religious belief, uh, which is a fight that he was having then that unfortunately we still have today. And um, he also was a Republican Democrat, so he was, uh, he found himself in the middle. He was closer friends with John Adams personally. Who was a Federalist. Who was a Federalist, but his, his, but he was closer to Jefferson politically. Who was a Democrat. Who was a Democrat. Well, he was, we called, they were called a Republican, a Democratic Republican in those times. So he was caught between uh, the first actual party incivility in our country, which started in the 1790s in Philadelphia when the uh, U.S. Capitol was there. And he was caught in the middle of it in a really serious way. Although he later, as, as I think you may know, um, he's the one who brought Adams and Jefferson back together after they didn't speak for over a decade. It was his personal project to make sure that before one of them died, that he got them back together because he thought if if party separatism was going to break up the, the two men who were most involved in creating the country in his idea, what was that going to mean for us in the future? if the beginning of political parties could blow apart the most important political friendship in America. So that very important political friendship, uh, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams, how was he able to bring them back together? It was at the very end of their lives. Is that correct? Well, it was more to the end of his life. He didn't know that he was younger than them. Um, ironically, he, th- he was afraid one of them would die. And so that kind uh, of spurred his. Yeah, his after the election of 1800, they didn't speak for a number of years. Adams was really unhappy. And so uh, Adams and Rush started corresponding. And at a certain point, Rush started telling Adams, like, you and Jefferson really need to get back together. It's like a high school thing. And, and it really, some of them actually feel like high school. Rush is saying to, you know, to Adams, like, Jefferson still loves you. Mm-hmm. You know, he still wants to be your friend. And um, one of the things that Rush did was he sent Adams a letter um, describing a dream that he had had. Um, in, in which he was reading from a history book from the future. And in the history book from the future, um, Jefferson and Adams had just gotten back together like the next week after the letter was written. It's this and old dream gambit exactly. that we see in so many sitcoms. Exactly, exactly. But it was, it was really important. It's like, it's like family therapy. And it was important to Rush. Now, again, he thought he was doing this because he thought one of Adams or Jefferson would die. The irony is that Rush died first. Um, and but he Ad- was able to achieve this? He was. The la- in 1812, after several years of writing letters to both Adams and Jefferson begging them to get back together, they started corresponding. They reignited their friendship, and they ended up being friends for the 13 years. So the letters that Rush wrote between him and Adams and Jefferson, and then the letters that Adams and Jefferson wrote to each other, and actually Adams' son and Rush's son with Jefferson— they give us so much of what we understand about American history, because American history was sort of written about once while it was happening. And then while the founding fathers were still alive, all these private letters that were not seen for decades. So tell me about these letters. You had mentioned earlier that after Rush's death, both Jefferson and Adams wanted some of their letters back. Did yeah. those letters end up being destroyed or were they just preserved and hidden? No, they were hidden for a really long time. What's amazing is that the some of them were held by Russia's family until the 1940s. Wow. So imagine how many history books were written without those letters um, until they were auctioned um, because the Biddle family, who had married into the Rush family, uh, finally auctioned them off. 
So in, during the Second World War, they were auctioned off, and it's part of the reason there was a huge explosion of interest in the Founding Fathers after the Second World War. With these because letters all, there was so much, so much new information, and these letters are really fascinating. They're really personal. Uh, some of them are embarrassing, um, but uh, some of my favorites have to do with, you know, Adams and Rush were both very upset by the idea that America was going to be driven by fame. That hmm. now that we didn't have a monarchy, that we would have fame, and that fame was going to do Boy, that. Boy, did they call that one? Yes, they did. So, so they were both upset that this was happening. One and two, a little upset that they weren't as famous <laughs> as Washington and Franklin, who they thought were going to get all the credit for everything. And they could already see that since the two of them were dead, and the books were already making out like they had done all the stuff that Adams and Jefferson and other people had done. This so, just seems so unfair to them. It's but... just—I mean—it's great to hear two cranky old guys bitching about America. Um, but also being unbelievably optimistic and into it. I mean, I, I think that, that it's really important to see that the Founding Fathers worried the same way we do that we could screw this up. Yeah. And, but and that also that... could find their optimism. And that's part of what I always found fascinating about Rush. He was a man of faith, but also a man who believed in uh, other people's faith you know, being allowed. So he, he fought for separation of church and state. Uh, but he really had a, a sort of optimism uh, that was tested all the time. But, you know, if you're a doctor before penicillin, you have to have an optimism that's tested all the time Boy, anyway. that's for sure. Uh, speaking of his role as a physician, so you're here in St. Louis to give a talk tonight at the Missouri History Museum. That's 7 p.m. tonight for those who are looking for something to do. And part of what the Missouri History Museum is interested in is Dr. Rush's role as medical advisor to the Lewis and Clark expedition. Yes. How did that role end up coming about? Uh, basically, you know, when, when Jefferson got permission to start the expedition, he felt that Lewis should go see Benjamin Rush, who was at that time the most famous doctor in America, uh, one of the only American writers that people read overseas. And uh, again, some of his medicine endures and some of it isn't, we don't do anymore. But he was also the most important medical educator of his day. So on the subject of the medicine that doesn't endure, um, you mentioned in the book that Rush sent the expedition with, quote, purging pills. What are purging pills? Well, purging was, you know, in, in these times, the idea that the, the way you got bad things out of the system was for them to leave various orifices of your body um, before they caused any damage. To so, expel them. Yeah, so they were expelled through the mouth and other places. And, uh, I mean, one of the jokes about the Lewis and Clark expedition is that the reason uh, we know where they went is because we know where they went. Um, because <laughs> so Rush gave them, was, Rush was gave them pills that caused diarrhea, and we actually and those pills had mercury in them. And because they had mercury in them, we can follow them. Oh, so wow. that's part of the way that the recreation of Lewis and Clark's uh, path uh, can be done. But so this, this doctor was he prescribing mercury? Well, he didn't invent... Well, first of all, let's be real. Mercury was used as a medicine in this country until the early 20th century. Which is... It just seems yeah. incredible today. I mean, so... I, and Rush didn't invent these ideas. He was just the most famous doctor teaching people how to use these methods. Sure. Um, and so, but he, so he gets, he gets credit for all bloodletting as if he invented it, for all purging as if he invented it. But he was just a man of his time. Yeah. So, I mean, so basically Jefferson sent Lewis to Philadelphia to meet with Rush and two other members of the American Philosophical Society, which was the most learned scientific organization in the country. And Rush was asked to both give him advice on how to not die and how to take care of his, the members of his group. And because Rush was interested in Native American health, he also gave him an agenda of questions that he wanted them to ask 
every native tribe that they met in terms of to get some idea of what their uh, beliefs were, what their religious beliefs were, what their medical beliefs were, what how men and women interacted with each other. Um, he asked them whether there was suicide in their uh, tribes, and if there was, was it ever for love? Hmm. So, so the questions are, are, are kind of fascinating. And so he sent uh, Lewis away with this. He also sent Lewis away, and I'll be showing this tonight. Lewis spent like just thousands of dollars on the, all the stuff that they had to take with them. So the, the biggest medicinal thing they bought was just like crate after crate of wine because wine was, the, um, was a medicine then. I mean, still but is. Lots of, um, lots of pills for purging, lots of um, you know, different uh, teas and, and different stuff. So there's a big long list of all the stuff that, uh, that, that Lewis bought there. But and, so he had asked them to, to find out some things about the Native Americans. Did they report back? You know, what's really interesting, and one of the things we'll talk about a little bit tonight, is that there's a real big missing chunk of what happened when Lewis and Clark came back. So Lewis came to Philadelphia afterwards, but there's no, we have no indication of him interacting with Rush. Hmm. And, you know, Lewis took a really long time. They took a really long time before they wrote their books. I mean, we just accept them now. But there was a big time period where, like, when's the book going to come? It's like every editor I've ever had. Um, maybe you were an editor like that during the time. I, I seem in to recall day. having in trouble getting writers to file. There you go. So, um, but th- there is a missing part. And, and what we always have to remind ourselves, is no matter how many letters we have between these people, there's always missing stuff, whether it got lost or thrown out or we might find it tomorrow in somebody's basement. Who knows? But it is very weird that Lewis came back ostensibly with some of the things that he had learned, and we have no indication of what he did with Rush. But here's one of the problems about being a historian. The best thing you can do as a historian is talk about people who aren't in the same city because then they'll write letters to each other. That's if a good point. If, if they're, they're running in into the same, each other in right, the If pub. they're in the same city, what's going to be left? There, there's no tweets. There's no Facebook pages. So um, I am, you know, in the relationships that I care about in this book, I'm perennially freaked out by the times when there's no letters. So who knows why there aren't, but I do think that it's still worth exploring, especially because obviously Lewis's death is very controversial. Many people feel that he took his own life. Um, and that he suffered from uh, mental illness in the in the months and years leading up to that. That's a big issue in American history. It's a big issue in mental health history. And but, the fact that we're still debating gaps. it today um, is is it's really important to continue. And every little piece of information we can get matters. We're talking to Stephen Freed. He's the author of Rush, Revolution, Madness, and the Visionary Doctor Who Became a Founding Father. We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com. And now back to our conversation with author Stephen Freed. Do you have a question for our guest or a comment about the life of Benjamin Rush? You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air or email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. And we do have one note for our listeners. In addition to tonight's talk at the Missouri History Museum, Stephen Freed will also be speaking tomorrow, that's Friday at noon, at St. Louis Union Station as part of its 125th anniversary celebrations. 
He'll talk about the legacy of Fred Harvey and Harvey Railroad restaurants. And he'll be signing his book, Fred Harvey and the Business of Civilizing the Wild West, One Meal at a Time. So that is tomorrow at noon at Union Station. Um, Stephen Freed, there were so many times reading this book that I found myself gaining new insight into the idea that the more things change, the more they stay the same. For example, Dr. Rush had his very own troll, a synonymous writer who targeted him in sometimes hilarious and sometimes really petty ways. Can you tell us a little bit about Peter Porcupine? Sure. So uh, Benjamin Rush had been familiar with the media his whole life. I mean, he was a writer himself. And uh, during the time when he was uh, writing uh, the, the treatise that set off the Boston Tea Party and uh, when he was signing the Declaration of Independence, the media was small. There weren't even daily newspapers so much. When uh, Philadelphia became the capital in 1790, all of a sudden you had the first a huge amount of media. It's it's almost the same as uh, us turning to the internet, meaning that all of a sudden there's a small town, all the founding fathers are there, and there's like eight daily newspapers. And some of them are uh, just made up uh, because they come from the British tradition of more uh, being essays than being reporting. So uh, this guy came um, who uh, called himself William Cobbett, who called himself Peter Porcupine. It's a great byline. And um, he created a sort of like a fake news newspaper and he believed that America should go back to the British. So he was sort of against everyone, uh, but he was mostly against Jeffersonians, and Rush was known as a Jeffersonian. So um, Rush got in his crosshairs, and so Rush had been in 1793 the lead doctor in the horrible yellow fever epidemic in Philadelphia, which just killed 10% of the city's population in three months. And no one knew how to treat this illness, and Rush treated it with bloodletting, which looking back didn't do anything, but neither did anything else that, that anybody did. And what Peter Porcupine started writing about in, for, in a political way was uh, that Rush had killed everybody in the yellow fever epidemic. Um, it was all from his treatments. And he would just make these things up and he would say, you know, I, here's a bartender that I met who says he wants to go into the bloodletting business because he hears it's really good. This is in a newspaper. I mean, and this guy was kind of onto something. Like bloodletting was kind of not the greatest thing. I understand it but was, his, at but, the time it but was But the, the idea that there was any medical reason for this, I mean, this was really just to criticize Jefferson. And um, the thing about Peter Porcupine was that he was funny. Um, I guess, you know, some of the people that whatever your politics are, whatever the politics you are not in favor of, you can admit that once in a while the people you're against are funny, but it's not like for a good reason. Right. So uh, Peter Porcupine, and there's actually notes of um, Abigail Adams sort of laughing, you know, sometimes at the things that he wrote about John Adams. But so he went further and further with Rush and Rush really couldn't take this. Rush had been really debilitated by the yellow fever epidemic. He was not well. And uh, he started getting more and more depressed by this. And um, he sued Peter Porcupine. Is this for libel? Yes. Um, And uh, his friends begged him not to do this. Adams and Jefferson begged him not to do this. Um, Adams even gave him a job at the U.S. Mint to help him with his money because he was unable to work. So Rush... He was unable to work because of um, what this had done to his reputation? He was so... Because of reputation and his own depression. Um, So he had this lawsuit. And he won. It's like one of the first libel suits ever. Um, and he won. And, and, and uh, Peter Porcupine was told never to write about these things. It was in state court in Pennsylvania. So Peter Porcupine immediately moved to New York um, and started writing the same thing. The, ir- the <laughs> irony classic. is that the day the verdict came down, George Washington died. And Peter Porcupine decided that George Washington died because, ben- because he was given Benjamin Rush's treatments. So after he lost his lawsuit and was told never to do this again, he moved to New York and a couple weeks later wrote a story saying that George Washington was dead because of Benjamin Rush's treatments. 
So and this is kind of the story for our time. These trolls simply cannot be stopped. He, he finally left the country after. And, and again, his, some of his writing is really funny. But, you know, to imagine what this must have been like when media was just starting. I mean, we're kind of used to it now. Yeah. Can you imagine in the 1790s what people must have thought because they were relying on the media for information? And uh, so, but Peter Porcupine was good writer, bad guy. Um, Dr. Rush's final book, and really it seems like his lifelong work, was a study of mental illness. Yet the way you describe his book, it seems like it was almost just a bunch of observations that, that didn't really end up leading to anything. Do you feel like he came to any conclusions? That... Well, I, I hope it doesn't sound that much. I mean, I try to be realistic about how quickly he wrote it and that it was a bit of a, uh, you know, a, a note dump. Um, but Rush had spent his entire life trying to convince the world that mental illness and addiction were medical diseases uh, and they needed to be treated medically. Uh, he also forced Pennsylvania Hospital to build the first building just for the care of mentally ill and addicted patients um, and to treat them uh, kindly, not to chain the people to uh, give them occupational therapy, to give them, to let them go out and be in the sun in the gardens, all these things that were pretty radical. Ironically, um, in the midst of all this, his oldest son, who was a physician, uh, became mentally ill. His son uh, got into a duel with his best friend on a boat. He was a Navy physician. He killed his best friend, and he went crazy. Mm -hmm. And within uh, a year, he was under his father's care. So part of the reason that Rush wrote this book was because he realized that even though he'd been talking about mental illness for 10, 15 years and really advocating it, while his son was in this hospital, he realized how little had changed. And so he wanted to put this out there. He actually announced that his son was mentally ill in a letter to the board of managers to try to get them to spend more money on this. And he wrote this book, which Adam said to him when it came out, he said, no one will appreciate how important this book is, mm -hmm. um, but eventually they will. And what's really interesting about it, it's a very readable book. It's all case studies. Some of the things in it, of course, we don't believe anymore. But most, a lot of things in it we do because it's really just observations of what the major illnesses are. And he talks about what the treatment is. And Rush was interested both in medical treatment and psychological treatment. He's considered the founding father of psychiatry and clinical psychology because they actually talked to the patients and kept some, you know, charts on what they said to them. So... Um, it's actually kind of a fascinating book, but it is, uh, it, it's a little all over the place. But, you know, what books were back then were, um, you know, you sort of got them out there, then you changed, you know, some of the things we do today, they did, you know, the first book is like, okay, we'll just change everything in the book. And Rush... So it was Ru almost just a draft. It was, but Rush knew he was dying. This was 1812, he was ill, and he had two things he wanted to get done before he died. And he was only in his 60s. He wanted to get Adams and Jefferson back together before he died, and he wanted to write a book, the first American book on mental illness. And there's a reason that book, when you, get, when you go to those medical libraries of all the nicely bound books of the most famous medical books in history, Rush's book on the diseases of the mind is always there hmm. because it is incredibly important, one. And two, it's incredibly readable. Um, and he pays attention not only to the illnesses that we think of, to uh, illnesses, traumatic illnesses, illnesses of war. Uh, it's, all, it's all right there. All these things that we think we invented in the 20th century, they kind of, as soon as we start looking at mental illness and addiction medically, they're all there. He actually can, says that there should be such a thing as a sober house so that people with addiction should be treated differently with people with mental illnesses because what they need to do is different. So he had very... Uh, forward-looking ideas. His ideas of sobriety came partly because, you know, Adams' son had died from alcoholism. So he had gone through that with his friend. 
So he really, in many ways, he was very much ahead of his time. And it's very clear in this book um, that he was just a remarkable man who did some many remarkable things. It becomes clear that, that you really grew to admire him in your research. Was there anything in his life, though, where you found yourself just recoil- recoiling in horror? I can't believe that, that Dr. Rush did this. Well, I mean, look, Dr. Rush was an abolitionist who, during a certain period, owned a slave. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that Dr. Rush himself was baffled by this. Uh, and, and we don't know enough about it to understand it. What I do know, although, is that uh, historians have not been careful with this information, and I've been trying to help them. And the number of times I go up on Twitter saying to people, no, that's not exactly right, uh, because I think it's important. And uh, especially, you know, I, I teach at Penn, and Penn, like many other universities, students are looking, again, at slave ownership of their teachers, of the founders, and we have to be really exact about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I think, you know, Rush even wrote... Uh, sort of this strange dream uh, piece um, uh, in which he talked about having a dream where uh, the ghosts of Negro slaves brought him up and talked to him about the things that they wanted him to go back and tell white people about what he what they had done to him, what they had done to them. Um, so, which it, wanted to give them their chance to yeah, to and, speak it, and it actually it was published not long before he freed his one slave. Interesting. So it seems like something that was perhaps made out of a little bit out of guilt. Um, but so, but I mean, and obviously, look, some of the treatments that Dr. Rush did did not help his patients. I don't think he knew that. I think that people write about this as if they did. Yeah. And what I say to them, and doctors often come to my talks, and they say, like, well, how could he use bloodletting? And I said, okay, um, I had a very close aunt um, who had breast cancer. She was given a bone marrow transplants because that was the extreme treatment of the day. And now we know that doesn't work. And that wasn't even that long ago. Exactly. So in every generation, there is uh, the heroic treatment. And some of them work out, and some of them end up being heroically wrong. We're talking today to Stephen Freed, who's the author of a book about Dr. Benjamin Rush. He'll be talking about it tonight at the Missouri History Museum. He'll also be tomorrow at St. Louis Union Station as part of its 125th anniversary celebration to talk about his book about Fred Harvey. Um, Stephen Rush, this book obviously required extensive historical research, and yet your background is in magazine journalism. How does that change how you approach a book like this, where you're really going deep, than, say, a historian who might be writing the same uh, on the same topic? I think the difference is in the writing, not in the research. Um, I don't think historians want to hear this because they're not happy that guys like me um, are in this business. But I mean, it has been happening since uh, Devil in the White City and uh, some of these other books, the popular history books um, at the turn of the century, um, that people who started out in magazines or newspapers are getting involved, especially in American history. And I think that uh, those of us who, who take this very seriously, we want to do the same research that historians would do. And, but we want to be able to write more narratively because that's what we're used to reading. So I think, actually, you know, I used to work at Vanity Fair, and I do think that Vanity Fair in its heyday was really the place where you first started seeing historical recreations written by magazine writers. And it's just the writing's more aggressive, the characterization's more aggressive. You have to be careful because people can bend the rules, and in history, no one comes and says, hey, you made that up. Um, I, my wife is my editor. She's the one who says, hey, you made that up. And she's going to stop you in your yeah, tax. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and she's a fiction writer, so she knows. Um, but it is, it is a little too convenient sometimes what people can do. But uh, what I would say is that, you know, Rush is somebody who has been written about uh, in the past in books you would never read on purpose, even if someone assigned them to you. Just because so they're so dull. He deserved, um, a, he deserved a, na- a good narrative book. And because he wrote so much and he was interested in so many things, I do understand the challenge of, you know, how do you deal with somebody who not only is a famous doctor, signed the Declaration of Independence, is involved with all these founders, but he is... 
He's written about so many things that matter. He is the founding father of American prison reform. He is the founding father of, you know, so many other things, public education. And so you, you have to be careful, like, how do you keep the reader in there? And what, the nicest thing that anybody said about the book is that it didn't turn into a list of his accomplishments, which I think a lot of history books they about people who accomplish do. a lot, they become that. And, and what I wanted to show was how hard it was to be him because uh, his wife was kind of constantly reeling him in in terms of how much work he did and, and also opinions he would put out there that were maybe only half-baked. Um, but he really believed that you wrote things, you put them down, you let people respond to them. And his writing, luckily, is not in any way uh, technical. It's, it's magazine writing. So it, it, I think it's, it, it, it all it fits together. So we've just got time for one more question. Okay. Um, and I'm going to go to a, a very light one, but I'm so curious about this. Um, in addition to all the fine books that you've written, you're actually famous for something that is a little unexpected, and that is that you coined the word fashionista. I did, in fact, coin the word fashionista. It appeared in the biography that I wrote of the model Gia Karanji that became that HBO movie with Angelina Jolie. Did you think this might be your claim to fame at the time you wrote that word? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, honestly, uh, my wife was screaming at me saying like, um, you know, you magazine writers, you're always making up words. You know, she's an English major. She's, and she actually said to me, she said, you know, here's the Oxford English Dictionary, which I have next to my desk. There's plenty of words in here. Just use one of those. So when Fashionista not only became accepted, but actually was put into the Oxford English Dictionary, she was somewhat apologetic. Um, it was, hey, who knew? It was in the book a couple of times. It got mentioned in the New York Times Review. And people in the fashion world started using it. And um, it's very fascinating. And I was a Jeopardy clue um, several weeks ago, now which all my, all my former fame. students informed me that that is the most important thing I could have done in my life and that I can die now. So on that note, um, Stephen Freed, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Stephen Freed's book, Rush, Revolution, Madness, and the Visionary Doctor Who Became a Founding Father is now out in paper book, paperback, and you can hear him at the Missouri History Museum tonight. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU.